from Melbourne and Minneapolis. This is for Christ's sake. Chapter 2, Saturday, Copenhagen, Denmark. Pure Bjornstrand, a Norwegian, checked into the Royal Hotel at 4 p.m. and went immediately to his room to shower and change. He had just arrived at Kastrept Lofthaven on a direct flight from Oslo. It had been a tiring trip. The plane was delayed in Oslo, and there had been considerable turbulence for over an hour in the air. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Hunter, and I'm joined as I am always by... What's your name, you piece of shit uh my name is hugh what else am i joined by today hugh a piece of shit nope you are joined by a signature snack and a signature drink and hugh can you remember what my signature drink and sneak are my signature drink and my signature drink and snack are <laughs> Your signature drink was <clears throat> some sort of blood orange soda mm. mixed with lemon and gin. Mm-hmm. Your signature snack was salt and vinegar lays. That's right. Can you remember my signature drink and signature snack? I certainly can, Hugh. Uh, at the present moment, you are forcing yourself to down a mighty glass of port. Tiny glass. Well, mighty in terms of its, you know, effect, not necessarily its size. Obnoxiousness, yeah. And you are stuffing a bowl full of hard pretzels into your mouth. That's it. All right. And today we are discussing uh, Michael Crichton. This is a podcast where we go through the works of Michael Crichton chapter by chapter. And we've, mm-hmm. uh, perchance, landed on his second novel, Scratch One. And we are discussing the second chapter of this book. Now, the last chapter of the book, Hugh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, no. let's see. What happened in it? A bunch of people got assassinated or almost got assassinated. That's about it. <laughs> there were three assassination attempts, two successful. Yes. Will we learn a little bit more about why these men were assassinated? I sure hope so. Mm. I sure hope someone will spell it out in uh, exacting detail. Before we get to that point, Hugh, we have to check in on our dear friend, Mr. Bjornstrand, a Norwegian. Hello. <laughs> oh, we're not doing a bit. Oh, yeah, Bjornstrand. Is that good? Yeah, so so what happened next? So, so what even happens? He's just some guy <laughs> in a hotel, right? Yes. A Norwegian dude. Yeah, yeah. In Denmark. A Norse is a Norse, a course, a course. Anyway, so he's in the Royal Hotel. He's sitting there. He is in one of Arne Jacobson's egg chairs. Don't know what that means. <laughs> he orders a martini. Mm. And what what is a single 
uh, attractive man like Pure Bjornstrand think to himself when he's alone in Copenhagen? You know, he checks out the the girl working behind the desk, and he thinks to himself, "How attractive these Copenhagen girls are! Am I right? Especially in comparison to you." To <clears throat> and I believe this is this is my bit for uh, for Crichton out loud this week. Where, uh, you know, the last chapter, I must say, lacked one of uh, my favorite recurring characters from uh, Odds On. But this chapter brings it back a little bit. Do you know what character that is, Hugh? Misogyny. <laughs> yeah, M- Michael Crichton's uh, Raging Misogyny. Now, <clears throat> here we go. He's riding proud. Come on, let's hear it. Right about now. For crying out loud. He could, of course, stay with his sister-in-law in Hillerod, but he always told himself that this was too far from the center of town. And the, the truth was that he loathed his sister-in-law, a mindless, cheer, child-bearing creature. Besides, Copenhagen girls were too much to pass up. Now, there's sort of an interesting dialectic between that, the sort of, you know, misogyny, the callous misogyny that he, you know, portrays here, right? Typical of Crichton's heroes. And in the next bit, which is that the chair that he's in, this Arn Jacobson's egg chair, encircled him like a womb. So on one hand, he wants to, you know, score with the lady. But on the other hand, what he really wants is to be back inside of his mother. Sort of an interesting psychological, uh, you know, I think I think really Craig is suggesting that uh, Pierre's uh, sort of womanizing ways are a product of his infantile mind. So really, this is a a book that's uh, scratch one for misogyny and, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, add one for feminism. Am I right? (laughs) All right. So anyway. Well put. So he's hanging out of this chair that's encircling him like a womb, smoking a cigarette, a lucky strike. And what happens to him, you? Um, Loud machinery interrupts his thought process. No. Is that just me? Uh, Apparently. Jesus Christ, what is that? Like a fucking weed whacker? C- come on, man. Uh, what, were you, what was I doing? And then he gets poisoned or some shit. <laughs> well, you sound like you haven't even read this chapter. You're like me in, in the last one, buddy. So, Hugh, um, he orders a martini. He picks it up, takes a sip. But oddly, there's something a little bit different about it. It's bitter. And then that, then he dies. That's it. <laughs> We're saying, I don't know how to say goodbye in Denmark, in Danish, rather. How do you think we say... Au revoir. No, in, in Danish. Ciao. No, in Danish. Sayonara. No, no, in Danish. Ta-ta. T-T-F-N. Uru. But I guess this guy isn't Danish, is he? He's Norwegian. That's right. Let's see. Apparently goodbye in Norwegian is ha-dit. Hmm. And in Danish, it is... Farvel, like farewell. So probably it's just farewell. <laughs> I'm just pronouncing that VA correctly. Can I quote a couple of things, uh, if I can be heard over the din of machinery that uh, persists outside my window? I, I, I can certainly hear you over the din of machinery, so please. Okay. I guess this is before he drinks the martini, so we're jumping back in time a little bit while he's in the hotel, hanging about. just wanted to quote this quickly. Please. He's riding proud. Come on, let's hear. He was only 45, 
still virile and still handsome. It wouldn't last forever. I just wanted to quote that because it gave me hope. So I have at least another 11 years. Before you have to kill yourself. Of virility and handsomeness. Um, anyway, the next paragraph we also wanted to quote. I mean, it might not strike anyone else as amusing, but it, it did me. His mind reluctantly returned to business. He was a dealer in armaments and, in a small way, a manufacturer. And the reason why that struck me as amusing, because I do appreciate that it doesn't seem especially amusing on the surface, is uh, when I imagined the second sentence adopting the perspective of the character, which is a style that uh, Crichton is wont to employ. What was it called? Free and direct speech. Yep. So when I'm picturing the character, like a, a typically like one-dimensional Crichton character, and his mind returns to business, the first thing he thinks is, I am a dealer in armaments, <laughs> and in a small way, a manufacturer. <laughs> All right, got it. That's my character. Cool. And then he moves on. Funny, funny stuff. That's it. That's all I wanted to quote. Anyway, then he drinks the martini, and uh, what happens? He enjoys himself. He has a good time. He enjoys himself, and then he dies. It's a shame. I was just getting to like him, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed his misogyny, the fact that he dealt arms, and that's it. Maybe that is another point um, in favour of your interpretation of Michael Crichton's perceived misogyny earlier, in that uh, he ruthlessly dispatches of this vile character. Exactly. Within, within a matter of paragraphs. Exactly. Because the world has moved on. And his misogynistic dinosaur attitudes won't last forever. Mm, but they will last probably to the end of this book. All right, Hugh, where do we go from there? We shift scenes to a location that uh, both of us have been to. Yep. Paris. Okay, Paris. For Serrat. Uh-huh. France, Paris, France, Paris in the summer is beautiful. And who are we introduced to but Inspector Edgar Duvernay? Edgar Duvernay. Hugh Hugh is a short man, like and me. he resented the doctor's long, early, easy strides. Like you. <laughs> He's like both of us put together. Now, hmm. as Inspector perhaps uh, suggests, this man is a detective. The noise stopped. Isn't that nice? That is. Let's continue. Uh, yeah, so he's a detective. He's a chief inspective detector. <laughs> he's an inspector. So he go, he's going to a doctor's office of some sort, or a hospital. That's right. The doctor is tall. With easy strides. That Duvernay resents. Correct. Because he's just a short old fuck like you. He takes him to a room where a patient is lying in wait. Mm. But before he uh, leads the inspector in, he says, I warn you, he does not look pretty. That's true. He does say that. And then, Hugh, we learn what this man looks like. What does he look like, Hugh? If you if you if you could define it using perhaps one tortured uh, noun adjective pair, what would you use? Half deflated football. <laughs> yes, that's that's what jumped to my mind too. So yes, there's a man <laughs> with a face like a half deflated football in this um, place, this hospital, and uh, was 
Duvernay adequately prepared for this horrific sight? Hmm. He was not. No, because he's new to this. Hmm. He's short and he's new. That's two strikes against him. He reasons that in a month or two, such things will cease to bother him. But for the moment... Yep, he, he retches a little bit, but he does not vomit if memory serves. No, I, I think he nearly faints, and uh, the doctor uses sniffing salts to bring him back to reality. Yes. Uh, and then we worry about the horrific circumstances of how this man got into this state, which is... He was on a subway platform. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, he appeared to fall in the direction of an oncoming train. Yep. But someone grabbed him. Prevented him from getting s- squished. But yeah, not before his head got clocked by the train. Not before his head got turned into what some may describe as a half-deflated football. Mm. <laughs> so. So, um... Duvernay, uh, it is revealed that Duvernay is the uh, watch at this man. He's going to prevent him from being killed, hopefully. Or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we cut again. That's it. To where, Hugh? Nice. And what's happening to Nice? Well, Hugh, if you were to guess that a sinister group of Arabs were conspiring to... <laughs> assassinate several members of the intelligence community, you'd be right. I think, Hugh, I think we can agree that thus far, this book is a little bit less misogynistic than Michael Crichton's other book, right? Mm-hmm. But, Hugh, uh, does it make up for it by being more racist than that other book it ever was? <laughs> uh, is that a yes? Let's find out. Together. All right. So, um, we're in Nice. There's a Dr. Georges Lissau. It sounds like a French name, right? Mm-hmm. But, Hugh, um, his swarthy complexion reveals that he is of Algerian birth. No. <laughs> and therefore evil, <laughs> I think. Uh, so, he's sitting around a table with uh, some other men who all look pretty, you know, like normal, normal folk, I guess. You mean one would never suspect that they were all... Arab agents? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, now my memory goes a little fuzzy, so I'll rely on you to recount the rest of this uh, exchange. So we've already uh, experienced a number of assassinations and assassination attempts. Who's responsible? Well, it transpires that uh, Dr. Lissau and co. are indeed responsible, and they are debriefing about uh, the previous attempts and successes. Mm. And Lissau is not especially happy with uh, the way they've gone about some of the executions. That's true. Obviously, some of them uh, outright failed, and the target is still alive. And uh, in other cases, such as the poisoning of uh, that dude in uh, Copenhagen, Mm -hmm. he would have preferred a subtler poison that uh, would not be picked up in uh, the autopsy report. Anyway, that sort of stuff. That's what happens. That's true. And then the next important bit about this scene is that... uh, he instructs his gang of uh, evil Arab agents <laughs> that they need to deal with an assassin flying in from New York. Mm-hmm. And secondly, he has uh, called upon the assistance of a man named Ernst Brower. Mm. 
Sounds Germanic. And the mere mention of that man's name causes a stir. Because didn't he change sides, switch allegiances during the Algerian War? Ah, LaSalle says, yes. Yes, he indeed did. Turns out that uh, despite the concerns of his comrades, the fact that this Brower gentleman switched allegiances during the war doesn't actually concern our mastermind, Mr. Doctor, sorry, sorry, Dr. Lissau, because the only reason he switched sides apparently was just for financial gain, and uh, in this particular situation for this particular job, uh, they have enough financial means to ensure that uh, he is loyal to their aims, I guess. Mm. That's that section, right? That's done. Now let's go to London. How about we go to London? Do you want to join me and go to London? No, let's let's go to London. Let's take a plane to London, shall we? Where within London? In a private room above a restaurant off of Tottenham Court Road. Cool. So, Hugh, the head of the um, Paris... I don't know. I think it's implied that it's some sort of intelligence agency. His name is Amory. Amory? Mm-hmm. He is meeting with the American killer. His name is Morgan. Basically, there's a lot of <laughs> exposition to this, but all of the people who have been killed were attempting to facilitate the sale of some outdated Norwegian arms to the Israeli government. Is that yes. about it? And the uh, these Arab agents want to uh, prevent the sale of these arms because... Uh, I guess they hate Israel. That's the the point of it, right? It's not merely the arms trading that they object to. Mm. It's the arms trading in the context of something that's happened before with the uh, American-Israeli uh, relationship. Didn't America help supply Israel with the materials that they later used to create a facility that could create an, at- an atom bomb? Yes. Or nuclear weapons or something. Yes. And obviously that is the main concern... Uh, from the neighboring countries. Mm. And in the context of the arms deal, where America is now supplying arms to Israel, this seems intolerable, right? It must be stopped. Mm. That's the broader context for all these assassinations and other business. Mm -hmm. And basically what this guy Morgan is supposed to do is to prevent um, the other people who are involved in this deal who survived assassination from being assassinated. Well, his job is to make sure the deal goes ahead. Yeah. And he is supposed to do a little bit of assassinate himself by killing the head of the league, the aforementioned Lisao. And all his little goons as well, if possible. Yes. All of his Arab agents. So It appears as though the misogyny was a mere appetizer. To the main course, which is racism. Speaking of racism, we jump back to Nice. Oh, uh, yeah, because Lissau is meeting with uh, Ernst Brower. Hmm. What does he look like? What does this Brower fellow actually look like? He looks like a piggy. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an Aryan piggy. And at one point, to test his mettle, Lissau says, and I quote, Your nerves are good, Deutschwein. <laughs> Deutschweiner. German pig. Mm. So, what, well, if you had to describe uh, Brower with, say, a couple of adjectives and a noun, what would you do it? Deflated football? No, no. 
Um, Pig-faced man. No, no. Um, bunched muscles. No, no. I was going for uh, a great blonde murder machine. Mm. So, basically, uh, he's got uh, Brower in. And Brower explains <laughs> that the only thing he doesn't do is he doesn't kiss his employer's asses. Do you reckon at some point in this novel, um, when uh, Morgan arrives on the scene mm. and perhaps has a confrontation with uh, a certain gentleman that we've just been discussing, mm. do you reckon Morgan will have to fight the Brower? Uh, no, Hugh, because uh, this is not a spoiler necessarily, but uh, I read the first sentence of this book's uh, Wikipedia uh, page. Why? Uh, I don't even know. I clicked on it accidentally, uh, and I learned that we have not even been introduced to this book's central character yet. So, Wow. That gives me hope, because I'm not interested in anyone who's been introduced so far. No. But uh, what is Brower being uh, used for right now? Uh, what? What? What's he being paid to do? Uh, I was under the impression that uh, we saw smelled a rat in his uh, organization. So he's being paid to knock off the uh, people who who they fail to kill. That is one type of person. And he, they, that we saw is suspected that someone has... Uh, someone has... Uh, betrayed him. We also get some character development here. Mm. And I want to read a little bit of the text here too. <clears throat> He's riding man proud Come on, let's hear it Right about now Feel crying out loud But Brower knew some less elegant and aristocratic facts about Lee Sal. He'd been born in Algiers, the son of a French doctor in Algerian beauty, which no doubt accounted for his dark skin and ascetic face. And uh, I think it uh, is... Um, uh, Crichton is implying here also the source of his evil. <laughs> uh, during the Algerian War, he was rumored to have helped the OAS as a torturer. Brower loves torture. He was willing to kill a man if he was paid enough. But he would not prolong the agony for any reason. His every instinct was towards swiftest sureness. He was not a sadist. Though God know, knew he looked it. So Crichton's doing a little bit of, um, you know, uh, upsetting of expectations. We think the the German guy will, will be a, a fucking Nazi, am I right? Mm-hmm. But uh, what's interesting is that I looked up what the OAS was, right? I assumed it was some Algerian organization, but it's actually a French-Algerian organization that was trying to prevent Algerian independence. Maybe Crichton's trying to have it a bit both ways here, but still racist. <laughs> anyway. Brower thinks about the fact that, though Brower appears to be the dangerous one, Wiesau is perhaps more concerning because unlike Brower, who is a passionate man, Wiesau is completely cold, willing to strike like a cobra, if need be. Haughty and aloof. And that's it, I think. Oh, and then uh, Wiesau orders him to go murder the man at Paris. Let's make a quick prediction. Uh, I predict that there will be a torture sequence uh, featuring Dr. LaSalle <laughs> and uh, one of our protagonists. Will it be perhaps like a torture sequence in a James Bond film? Or indeed a James Bond novel. <laughs> yeah, m- more than likely. And it will involve a scalpel. 
That's my prediction. Yeah, I, I buy it. Uh, I also predict that we'll be introduced to the real uh, protagonist of the of the the novel in the next chapter. Hopefully, I hope so. <laughs> I want someone to care about. Okay, I, I do have a question. Did you find this chapter more compelling than the last one, which you said you found a little hard to connect to? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Interesting. I, I find this less compelling than like a goofy heist in a luxury like Spanish hotel. Where are the computer things? This this does not contain as yeah, much. Yeah, where's the Crichton, technology? Where's Crane's voice? Which I mean, where's his technology? <laughs> I guess we'll I guess we'll find out. Have you read it? Did you read enough of the synopsis on the Wikipedia page to know that there's definitely no technology? No. Okay. Oh, I read. He, he could still surprise us. Yes, he definitely could. Will he surprise us though? Probably not. This computer simulation that <laughs> shows you how to do the best arms deal. All right, uh, I think that's about it, huh? Yeah, I'll do. Catch it, catch you next week, guys, for another great edition of For Christ's Sake. Oh.